Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, I'm going solo. I want to revisit a post that I had on LinkedIn, which garnered amazing support. So weeks ago, I did a post on LinkedIn that talked about how you might prevent your VR program or your VR lab from suffering a slow death. And it blew up. There was over 34,000 impressions. I got over 50 comments, 32 reposts. It's obvious that this is a touch point for many of us is we, as early adopters, come out of the gate and decide to innovate and adopt a VR program. And then, you know, there's an uptick. And then slowly we realize that maybe we're not using the virtual reality programs and the headsets are gathering dust and cobwebs. So in my post, I talked about four things that a school could do to get greater sustainability out of their VR program or their VR lab. And in no particular order, they were number one, work closely with instructors and educators on how to integrate no-code or low-code virtual worlds that connect to bigger concepts within the curriculum. Number two was to try and refrain from typecasting the VR lab or the headsets to one particular department or section within the school. Number three, I suggested to scale up professional development so that we teach educators how to use and build these no-code virtual worlds and experiences. And then just as importantly, how do we connect them to our curriculum and learning outcomes? And finally, number four, I had suggested that a school develop a learning in 3D academic policy that outlines how the mission and vision of the school connects to using VR in their institution. So although I'm not spending this whole podcast unpacking all four of these premises, I do want to talk about a few of them. I, like many, have started VR labs and VR programs in institutions, and my first foray into it is usually to start to wow people with vendor content. There are some amazing VR programs out there. For example, lots of places around the world have adopted body swaps for soft skills training. Some have found using prisms of reality, in particular their pandemic scenario for math, 
as an outstanding VR application to put into their headsets and then try and scale out at their school. Some have seen the efficacy of a program like 3D Organon for anatomy and physiology. And these are just a few of the many amazing examples of vendor content that's out there that we might first find or curate and then purchase to put onto our headsets and then deploy to the various faculties and schools within our institution. They're highly interactive. They use, you know, coding in the case of either Unity or probably Unreal Engine. Therefore, they're polished. Um, but there's a downfall to just relying solely on vendor content. You know, number one, it takes these companies many months to build these out. So, you know, once we have them, we often are playing catch up to wait for the next best thing. Secondly, some of these vendor produced content aren't always 100% aligned to our school's curriculum outcomes. Or maybe they're just a small fraction of the learning outcomes or curriculum that make up a particular course of study or the goals of a department. So where do we go from here? Well, as I suggested at the top of the show, a great supplement to the ever-growing vendor content out there is to start to teach teachers how to use no-code virtual worlds. Some examples of these might be Mozilla Hubs, Zoe, Emidu.io, EngageVR, FrameVR.io. These are just a few of the many no-code virtual worlds that are the barrier to learning them is quite low. And a lot of these no-code virtual worlds are easy drag and drop, move and arrange 3D models and assets. They also have lots of examples of templates that we can simply just then fill in and populate so they don't take a lot of time to build out. Not only that, but these no-code virtual world platforms are flexible enough to allow the learner to either view it inside a VR headset or possibly on their computer, which is slightly less immersive and engaging, but still, given our VR program, might meet sort of the needs of flexibility. You know, we used to rely heavily in the 90s, I remember this, on textbooks to guide what we taught, how we taught it, and even what assessment practices we used. The textbook sort of became the guiding principle behind a lot of our teaching and learning. And then Google Docs came around, and at first, people were a little bit sort of, you know, they weren't necessarily, uh, you know, given the agency, the textbook sort of uh, handcuffed a teacher into, okay, you adopt this textbook from, you know, Nelson or Wiley, and that's sort of how you taught because you didn't know how to 
adapt it. But then Google Docs came around and Google Docs was easy to teach teachers. And they became greater agents of change because of the simplicity and use of Google Docs to start to create things like worksheets that were more aligned and adapted to how you wanted your program to run. Uh, you know, Google Slides also became a great way for you to deliver content instead of reading out of the textbook. And again, because they were so easy to teach teachers, that started to scale up how we delivered our curriculum as well as how we assessed. Well, fast forward to, you know, this year and maybe even last year where there is now the ability to use virtual worlds. And more importantly, since we've seen what kind of disruption AI in the form of chat GPT-3 has done to how a student could simply just have chat GTP spit out answers to some of our questions. Maybe, you know, now more than ever is the time to focus more on experiential learning in the form of taking kids into virtual worlds to start to think more deeply. So I want to talk about in your own institution how you might use virtual worlds. And it's a three-prong attack. One is how do we promote? Then number two, how do we learn or teach teachers? And then number three, how, how then do we use these virtual worlds? So let's, let's start with promote. How do we convince educators to make this shift? Well, if we think about textbooks and worksheets, these particular mediums which might allow students to reinforce their learning, we call this retrieval practice, students often talk about, oh, not another worksheet, or we have to read out of the textbook again. And one of the reasons why these mediums fall short or cause our students not to be engaged is because they lack context. Whereas in a virtual world, if crafted or designed appropriately, the learning can be situated in a world that is directly connected to the curriculum content. The real world environment becomes obvious to the student and the sights and the sounds. You know, we can tell what we might say a learning story, a learning narrative or a learning journey thanks to the fact that we can control how the environment connects then to the learning outcomes. So context becomes king here. Second, how else might we convince others within our institution that maybe this might be a good move to go to learning how to use and design virtual worlds? And that is active learning. You know, one example is the notion of cognitive apprenticeship. So cognitive apprenticeship means that we watch someone who might be a perceived expert do something and then we can repeat that. Well, thanks to the, the superpowers of virtual worlds, this is fairly easy to set up within a virtual world. We might have a hospital environment. Again, there are lots of templates out there, which means you don't have to recreate the hospital environment. You can find 
a platform like the ones I mentioned earlier on who already have this virtual environment for you. So then you populate it maybe with certain tools and then you can go in as an instructor and you can record yourself doing a procedure with those tools and then allow the student to watch and play back that recording and then manipulate the tools and procedures as the apprentice or uh, the apprentice sorry next why else might we promote the use of these amazing virtual worlds well besides cognitive apprenticeship active learning can also be triggered or engaged with the use of 3d assets we could take blocks, for example, and put key vocabulary terms and words on these blocks and then put those blocks inside a virtual world, then ask the learner to sort and organize the blocks in a particular way, maybe in groups or maybe in pairs, depending on how each of the words or vocabulary pair up. This is a very active way of engaging in the material. And again, from a a cognitive science or a, a learning design or instructional design perspective, we call this retrieval practice. But more importantly, because the learner is actually picking up things and moving them around, they have a greater vested interest and therefore maybe a greater chance that as they engage in this material, it gets pushed out of their working memory and into their long-term memory. Let's talk about step two. So those are promote. How do we promote this? How do we convince teachers that this is a worthwhile endeavor within your school or institution? Then what? Then what approach do we take to get them to learn it? Well, step one, they they don't need to design virtual worlds for everything in their curriculum. That is to say, not everything needs to be taught in a virtual world. Some, you know, some things might be still via a textbook or video or lecture, but you know, we want to target or sprinkle our instruction as well as our learning journey so that there's a variety of different experiences and some of those might be an engagement within a virtual world. Moreover, students might first be introduced to something and then get a virtual world experience and then come out of that virtual world experience doing maybe a worksheet or a discussion to reflect and review what went on. Next, how do we teach teachers this? Well, besides getting the point across to teachers that not everything needs to be taught inside a virtual world, we also want to talk to them about, okay, if we're not meant to teach our entire curriculum via virtual worlds, which curriculum outcomes are worthy of us considering designing a virtual world learning experience. Well, one of the greatest targets for these types of worlds is that they foster deeper thinking. 
So we targeting facts and knowledge is probably not the best use case to take students into a virtual world. However, targeting bigger ideas or concepts, virtual worlds can harness this. And this is almost like their superpowers. You know, so again, to delineate, concepts are things like power, identity, systems, change, conflict. Whereas facts, you know, are things like important dates, key parts to things like parts to the heart, important uh states or capital cities. So uh, facts don't necessarily need to be taught within virtual worlds. However, the schema, the bigger ideas and concepts should. So, you know, virtual worlds could be used to create a simulation of a historical or cultural context and provide an opportunity for students to explore and understand how these cultures and perspectives differ. An example, our grade threes at the school I'm at were learning about their local culture, the norms, the values. But to get them to really understand this critically and deeply, maybe we take them to a culture that they've never been to or are not familiar with, because they certainly are fairly familiar with the local culture. They go down maybe to the grocery store. They might visit a restaurant. They've experienced that. But we might take them to a virtual world, to a culture somewhere else where they can look at and compare and contrast. You know, one of those might be in Canada, we have the Inuit. So a lot of the Inuit in Canada live in the northern part of our country. So you could design a virtual world and have them move around and explore Inuit culture, what are some things that make up their culture, what are some norms, some habits, some hobbies. Another thing to try and highlight this importance of when we're designing our curriculum, virtual worlds are really good at teaching higher level thinking, teaching deeper concepts within our curriculum. One learning outcome of a, a typical biology curriculum might be understanding the main anatomical structures of the cardiac system. You know, this could best be taught maybe through video, PowerPoint slides, lectures. But an additional learning outcome as part of many biology curriculums is understanding how these various parts within the cardiac system act together to maintain homeostasis within the body. Now this one's harder to teach with just video or PowerPoint slides or textbook. So maybe we design a virtual hospital and that's our context or environment. And then inside that virtual hospital, we might set up 3D assets. So two different patients. And maybe we have a little picture of vital signs for these two different patients, things like what their blood pressure is, maybe what their temperature is. Maybe we also add like a, an easy MP3 or audio file of what their heart sounds like. And we can then have the learners go inside this and start to sort of ruminate on which of these two patients 
might be at a higher risk of cardiac disease. What an amazing way to utilize a virtual world and connect it to a deeper curricular outcome. Another thing that we want to focus in on for our teachers is how to build the virtual environment. So how do we get them to understand that when we have targeted certain curriculum outcomes, what's the next step? Well, the next step is what environment should it be in? What context should we let this play out as? And again, as I've talked about before, these lots of times come as already pre-made templates. And just being able to ensure that you pick a virtual environment that really fits with your curriculum outcome. You wouldn't want to pick, for example, a virtual environment of a classroom if the learning outcome was to understand more about Aztec culture. You'd want to take them on a field trip to what it looked like historically for the Aztec people. Or even better, try and start to design 3D environments or contextual environments that are multi or interdisciplinary. An example of that might be a grocery store. A grocery store is a great interdisciplinary environment because there's so many topics that you could learn and teach within a grocery store. Food waste on the topic of sustainability. You could look at nutrition. You could look at math and start calculating unit values. So, you know, keep that in mind as you start to build out these 3D virtual worlds. Next, you want to teach your teachers how to decide on what 3D assets to put into their virtual worlds. So most virtual world, no code 3D platforms has an, has an asset library. And some of the better ones actually connect it to something called Sketchfab. Sketchfab is kind of a community website where 3D models are made and people post them there sometimes for free, sometimes for a price. Lots of 3D virtual world building sites allow you simply just to integrate a 3D asset from these Sketchfab libraries. So our teachers or the teachers at your school want a strategy for how to use the assets. Plopping them down in the room just doesn't suffice. So, you know, having them orchestrate scavenger hunts for key 3D assets that then could be used somehow in the lesson is a great strategy or having them sort and order 3D assets that you put in the 3D environment, having them be able to see a 3D environment before and then after, and they have to figure out what went wrong between the 3D environment in a before scenario versus after. These are great ideas on how to use the 3D assets that you're putting in. So, so far we've talked about how we might promote at our school amongst teachers and instructors, why we should use virtual worlds. We've talked a little bit about what teachers need to learn about the virtual worlds, 
like what, how to target curriculum outcomes, how to pick or design the virtual environment, and then how to put down or plop in key 3D assets to promote active thinking, active learning. The last step is how do we use these virtual worlds? Well, I really see two use cases. One is to use them in a synchronous fashion or synchronous manner with your students. And the other is to use these virtual worlds in an asynchronous. So synchronous means that these lear learning engagements, these virtual worlds would be used live where a teacher's in there and all other classmates are also in, in there. Whereas asynchronously means that these learning engagements or virtual worlds won't have a live person. Often a student's going to go in on their own at their own pace to discover, ruminate, probe, and think deeply. I tend to recommend that you start out with virtual worlds whereby you're using them asynchronously. And there's a few reasons for that. One, this is new for many learners. And when something's new, the cognitive load, so, you know, let's talk about the working, the working memory. When you enter a learning engagement, how is your working memory? Well, it, it can be overloaded when you're put into a new environment. No different than when we travel the world. Often, you know, our, sense, our senses are exploding when we visit a new city. The sights and the sounds become overwhelming. Same idea in a virtual world. So if you allow the learner to go in on their own without their peers or other classmates, you can lower the pressure, increase the focus because they're in there by themselves. But make sure you have clear instructions so that they're crystal clear on what it is that they need to do inside the virtual world if they're on their own asynchronously. One way to do that is to make sure you have posters plopped on the walls and those posters can either A, act as a set of instructions or they can also help to trigger prior knowledge. Like if you're using the virtual world to talk about, you know, cardiac systems, maybe you have a poster on the wall with the different parts to the heart so that they can use that to trigger the learning that's going to happen. So you, you then might deploy this as an after school or outside of your regular instructional time assignment where they have to go in almost like a homework assignment and do that. You know, then once they're used to that, you might then start to use some of your virtual worlds in a synchronous fashion. These are amazing for case studies, for example. I just helped facilitate a few weeks ago a case study for chest pain. So the scenario was that we had live people in there and one of them was a patient and the patient was complaining of chest pain. And we had a doctor in there and some nurses and then some other participants as part of the healthcare profession. And it was a role play event where one of the, the patient was basically complaining of chest pain. You know, the, the nurse and the doctor asked probing questions to the patient to get them to diagnose maybe what's happening 
we ended up then going to a 3D virtual hospital. And at the 3D virtual hospital, you know, we simulated vital signs to be taken. We paused and the group of people, I think it was 10 or so people talked about, you know, of the vital signs, are there any red flags? Then inside the virtual room, there was medicine set up and we asked the participants in the live session, which particular medicines might we use or give the patient after looking at the vital signs. And this, this discourse, this conversation was quite lively and it allowed for multiple perspectives. So this is a, just a quick snapshot again of a really key strategy that your school should consider. Again, moving beyond just using off-the-shelf paid-for vendor apps, how might we scale out VR in our institution? Where do you go from here? Well, you know, consider striking up a committee to adopt an immersive learning policy. Also, make sure that you're targeting teacher champions who are already known as early adopters and innovators within your building to start to, you know, gain momentum. I can't help but think about cell phones. So at many of the schools I've been at, we sort of, we dropped the ball on the cell phone. The cell phone has become the domain for students to use for their own personal needs. Things like Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. These are non-learning use cases of the cell phone. So I, I've tried as a technology integrator to think of ways to use the cell phone from a more pedagogical perspective, but it usually garners very little traction among students because students see the cell phone as something else now. So we missed our moment here. So when it comes to virtual worlds, I think there's still time left to not have these virtual worlds suffer our cell phone moment. If we start to use virtual worlds it, as truly places that are for deep critical learning in schools, whether that's in higher ed or K to 12, then students will start to see them as more than just places to do games or to meet up socially. So, where do we go from here? Well, if you are interested in learning more, uh, I invite you to check out my LinkedIn profile or you could send me an email and I'd be happy to engage you more in how you might use professional development to roll these strategies out. Also, I invite you to take a look at a, a colleague that I follow, Andrew Wright. Andrew Wright has some neat use cases on his website it is www.edumetaverse.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I wish you a wonderful week. Bye for now.